Let me add uh, my welcome to Sam's. My name is Johnny. I'm the, the, the pastor and part of the leadership team here. And let me also uh, add my welcome uh, particularly to Jack. And thanks for being here this evening and for the encouragement of sharing with us. Please do uh, grab Jack after the service. Uh, keep, take him at his word uh, and, and ask him all those questions about, about Cuba and Vietnam and other parts of the world he's been. Um, I'm sure that would be an encouragement to you as it would be to him. Um, as Sam mentioned, we're going to be looking together at Psalm 129. And it will be helpful for you, and I trust for me too, to have that open in front of you over the next few minutes. I'll read Psalm 129 just now. A song of ascents. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers ploughed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Let me um, pray for us before we think about it together for a few minutes. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you that the scriptures were inspired by you and that they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And we ask now that as we think about the scriptures together, you please be at work to each of those ends in each of our lives by your Holy Spirit. We ask all of this in the name of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for his sake. Amen. Now, if this is your first time with us on a Sunday evening, or perhaps just your first Sunday evening for a while, over the past few weeks we've been working through this collection of psalms together, the Psalms of Ascent, and they are a playlist, if you like. They're a group of songs that were sung by God's people whilst they were on a journey uh, towards Jerusalem uh, to celebrate several annual festivals. And one of the, the big themes that we've seen being repeated several times now through these psalms is that of opposition or of difficulty on the journey. So in Psalm 120, the pressing problem was that people were saying untrue things about God's people. They were lying about God's people. In Psalm 123, God's people were facing contempt. The psalmist wrote, our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease. In Psalm 125, the psalmist spoke of the scepter of wickedness. Or in other words, there was an evil ruler in control of the place in which God's people were living and seemed to be calling the shots and making life difficult. And whether you've been here for some or all of those studies, or perhaps you're hearing all of that for the first time this evening, well, I wonder if it might feel a bit as though it's overkill. All of this focus on on, on suffering, 
or on opposition or on persecution for being God's people. I mean, as Christians, things aren't meant to be that bad, are they? We are people who've been given abundant life. That's what Jesus tells us. And not only might it feel out of kilter with the Christian faith, generally it might feel out of kilter with our own experience right now. Because not many of us are facing persecution, certainly to the extent that the psalmist seems to be describing. So as the psalmist, or the psalmists who've written these various psalms, just a bit of a kind of glass half empty kind of person. Or perhaps more to the point, am I who thought this series in the Psalms of Ascent was a good idea? Am I a bit of a glass half empty kind of guy? Or is this focus on, on, on persecution and on difficulty? Is it a mark perhaps of a kind of persecution complex where Christians are, are baiting for a fight wherever we look? Well, it is possible Christians can develop a complex around the idea of persecution. But I don't think that's what we've been doing together over the past few Sunday evenings. And neither does the author of Psalm 129. The focus of Psalm 129 is again on the issue of opposition. You might have noticed that from the way the psalm starts. Verse 1, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, says the psalmist. And that, that affliction or difficulty isn't just the, the, the kind of general difficulty we might face as imperfect human beings living among other imperfect human beings. It's a suffering that results from people's hatred of God and of God's people. Just notice that as you scan down to verse 5. May all who hate Zion be put to shame. Zion being the place of God's dwelling among his people. So we are again dealing with the issue of God's people facing persecution, facing suffering, simply for being God's people. Only whilst this is another of the Psalms of Ascent, those songs written for God's people to sing on that journey, well in Psalm 129, this experience of suffering, of difficulty, of persecution, it's located within the grand sweep of the history of God's people. It's identified as the kind of suffering that God's people have always faced. And in fact, it's identified as the kind of suffering that will only fully be addressed in heaven and the new creation. Or in other words, one of the big takeaway points of Psalm 129 is that God's people have always been persecuted and only in heaven and the new creation will that persecution ultimately be dealt with. And that means that this psalm should help, if nothing else, to calibrate our expectations as God's people in the here and now. Should set our expectations rightly when it comes to the opposition that we do and that we ultimately will face as Christians. And it will therefore help us to respond to it rightly. Let's think about that together under our first heading this evening. Next slide, please, Jonathan. Thank you very much. To the Christian facing hatred, remember, God's people have always been opposed. Now, I suspect that most, if not all of us, will have heard that old maxim that sticks and stones can break your bones, but names will never hurt you. And it's a catchy little poem, isn't it? Perhaps you were encouraged to recite it to yourself when someone was giving you a hard time as a youngster. As it turns out, it's a whole lot of nonsense, isn't it? 
See, the experiences of, of, of hardship or of bullying we face in our childhood or our youth, well, they're often acutely painful at the time. And they're often kind of burned or etched into our memories. Perhaps you can still remember vivid details about words spoken to you in the playground, even though it might have happened for some of us many, many years ago. Well, the author of Psalm 129 can empathize with that kind of experience. He was given a really hard time as a young person. And in fact, that hard time has carried on ever since. Now, whether that hard time was was verbal or was physical, we can't be sure. But what we can be sure of is that the experience really stuck with him. Verse 1, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. He's been afflicted, opposed, since he was young. And actually, it isn't just personal hardship that can be ingrained in our minds, even as as nations or as families or as people groups. The kind of collective experience of difficulty can live long in the memory. And we illustrated that this morning, didn't we? As we remembered millions of people who died, not least people from the UK, in conflicts in years gone by. We were, of course, honoring the sacrifice of those individuals whilst also acknowledging the kind of collective hardship that many people faced as a result of those deaths. We were mourning with those who mourn. And whilst the collective hardships faced by those who've gone before us might live long in our memories in the UK, well, so too did those faced by God's people through the ages. Remember these psalms, the psalms of ascent, where we're traveling songs for God's people on the journey to Jerusalem. And whilst in the opening verse, the psalmist remembers his own personal experience of difficulty, well, he also calls on the rest of God's people to join in. It's almost like a marching song. I wonder if you noticed that. Verse 1, let Israel now say. It's like, join in with me, he's saying. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And that's because affliction isn't just the psalmist's personal experience but that his experience is one that is shared by the whole people of God. It has been from their youth. Now again, we don't know the precise situation they're referring to, the story they're remembering. What we do know, though, is that that shared history is a painful one. Verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Now, I'm afraid to say that I'm a bit of a townie. I've always lived in towns and cities, really. But even someone like me is able to get their head around the farming picture in verse 3. As you drive through an area of countryside, and far as the eye can see in the field surrounding you, there are long furrows where the ground has been broken up and turned over ready for sowing seed or for planting. And the image should make us flinch in verse 3 if we allow it to. Because the psalmist is likening his own affliction and that of God's people as a whole to having some of those long furrows made down the length of his back. The picture is really grim and it's deliberately so. 
And yet, whilst we can't be sure of the exact hardship the psalmist himself experienced, well, we do know that it's an accurate picture when it comes to God's people. Think back over the long history of God's people, of Egyptian bondage as slaves, of babies threatened with being drowned. Think of battles for the promised land or of oppression in the days of the judges or of wars with the Philistines and with the Amalekites and with lots of other ites, actually. See, the history of God's people has been littered with people who have opposed them, who have, in fact, hated them. Now, I wonder if you've ever seen the TV program, Who Do You Think You Are? It's a show where someone famous often is filmed as they explore their own family history, meeting various historians and archivists and researchers and visiting places that their ancestors might have lived or worked The moments that really stand out in that TV program are when a historian or a researcher is is talking the celebrity through an amazing historical story or a period of history that really stands out. And you can see the the celebrities hooked by the story. And the researcher ends up dropping the bombshell that the person right at the heart of that story was in fact your great-great-grandfather. And all of a sudden, that compelling story becomes even more compelling to the celebrity, doesn't it? When they realize it's part of their story. Well, I think it's important to remember as we read Psalm 129, that if you're a Christian, well, the psalmist is functioning like the researcher or the historian or the archivist in Who Do You Think You Are? He's telling you about your family's history. We aren't trying to appropriate someone else's experience as our own, even though it's secondhand. Nor are we even speaking in general terms about the kinds of things that have happened to humanity throughout the ages. Though the affliction of God's people that they've faced from their youth is your family's affliction if you're a Christian. One that they have always faced. And that does go some way towards framing our own expectations for ourselves, doesn't it? Perhaps as you reflect on the cultural or the political landscape in Scotland, and you feel pretty anxious about the trajectory of things, that the Christian faith is starting to feel increasingly marginalised and will only be more so over time. And when you combine that with the wider landscape in the Western world, well, none of that feels as though it's a phase or a political fad. It feels as though secularism, for example, is here to stay, doesn't it? At least it can do. I was thinking this past week of what things will be like for for my two little boys growing up in Scotland over the coming years. And it struck me that it's only going to be harder for them to follow Jesus than it has been for me. Well, Psalm 129 reminds us that actually that experience isn't unusual at all. It has always been like that for God's people. What has actually been unusual is the period of time where the Christian faith has been culturally acceptable or even influential. Throughout history, people have been hostile to God and to his rule in the world. Always have. And so if you're someone someone who sticks with him, who listens to what Jesus says and follows him, Well, of course you're going to face some flack for that. 
And if you still aren't quite convinced, well, just remember Jesus told his followers to expect exactly as much, didn't he? John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, what that hatred might look like for us might be quite different from what it looked like for the psalmist or from our brothers and sisters throughout the ages, perhaps, or even from the experiences some of our brothers and sisters face all around the world today, as we've heard this evening from Jack. But though the opposition we might face just now is perhaps more subtle, for the time being at least, well, the principle remains the same. Psalm 129 shows us that it is to be expected. Don't be surprised when it comes. And it is worth saying, if all of that still feels a bit remote from you and your own experience as a Christian, if you, if you couldn't say that you really have faced much in the way of opposition, well, just give it time. And when it comes, and I suspect that it is sure to come, remember Psalm 129. We are called as Christians to identify as Jesus' people. And as we do that, as we publicly identify with Jesus Christ, we're identifying with a crucified king. We will be hated, just as he was. So don't be surprised. But if you can see that, if that pattern is a persuasive one to you, well, what are we to do with it? Because what I've been saying so far might have sounded a bit fatalistic. Well, the psalmist's intention in Psalm 129 is not that we should wallow, but it's ultimately that we should persevere as God's people. That's the big end goal of the psalm, this one in particular, and I think of all of the psalms of ascent. And to see that, it's important to notice that hardship isn't the dominant note that the psalmist leaves us with at the end of the psalm, is it? Just read again, verse 2, in fact. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. Try as hard as they might, the gates of hell have not prevailed upon the church. That's our story. It's the story of God's people throughout history. And that's our next point this evening. Remember, God's people have always been opposed, but by God's grace, we are still standing. Now, in the 17th century, King Louis XIV of France met with a man called Blaise Pascal. Pascal was a French philosopher. And the king asked Pascal if he could provide him with any evidence in the world of the supernatural. He wanted to be persuaded. And Pascal answered, why, the Jews, your majesty, the Jews. There was simply no logical explanation for that people group having survived all that they had survived. And what Pascal observed of ethnic Israel, of ethnic Jews, is something that the psalmist of Psalm 129 acknowledges of God's people as a whole, the people of Zion. Despite the persecutions faced by God's people from their youth, well, the fact that they're still standing, that we are still standing, is an extraordinary thing. And the author of Psalm 129 recognizes that. 
I wonder if you noticed that. The afflictors haven't prevailed against God's people. Why? Verse 4, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. What cords is he talking about? Well, I think those cords that held the plow on the believer's back. What he's saying is the fact that God's people are still standing is a testament to God's grace. And if that was true of his old covenant people through the toils and hardships they faced, well, isn't it true of us? Think of the ragtag group of followers Jesus left as he ascended to heaven after the resurrection. Weak and small and limited. And yet, as we mentioned together this morning, now over a billion strong. The Lord's protection of his people is just an extraordinary thing. And not just on a corporate level. His guarding of each of you, Christian, is a mark of his kindness. Now, we might not have faced the same persecutions as many of our brothers and sisters around the world have faced or continue to face. But for most of us, humanly speaking, we'll be able to think of points in our lives when it would have been easier just to tap out as a Christian, to pack it in, to walk away. The psalmist sees God's past protection of him and of God's people as a whole as reason for confidence in the present. And so it is for you too. If you are anxious about what future trials might await you as a Christian, or might await the church as a whole in Scotland, or the UK, or the Western world, well then hear this. The Lord has kept you, has kept us safe thus far. And you can rely on him to lead you safely home. But the past isn't the only fuel for perseverance for the believer in Psalm 129. The the psalmist also points us forward to the future. That's where he ends the psalm. And so that's where we're going to end this evening under a final heading. Be certain that opposition to God and his people will not go unpunished. Now just read with me again verses 5 and 6. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up. Just try and fix that image in your mind of grass growing in between roof slates or in the gutter at the front of your house. And through exposure to, to the sun, or I guess we live in Aberdeen, through exposure to the wind, it shrivels up and it dies before it really gains traction. That's what the psalmist prays for those who have opposed God's people. That they will wither to be thrown away. Or as you read on to the end, nor do those who pass by the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. We need to spot the negative in in that idea to understand what's being conveyed. The sense is of the afflictor of God's people having blessing withheld from them. And notice that all of this is couched as a prayer. Verse 5, may all who hate Zion. Verse 6, let them be like grass. This is like a wish list for the psalmist. And I wonder if that strikes you as being quite unchristian. 
perhaps. To wish bad things on someone, no matter what they might have done to you. Well, in one sense, it is right that we should feel like that. We saw that in our studies in Romans a few months ago, actually. Paul says in Romans that Christians are never to avenge yourselves, but to leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, says Paul, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. So there is a rightness in the fact that our impulse is to love, not to repay people when they make life difficult for being a Christian. And yet at the same time as that, well, the Bible is clear that God will ultimately judge anyone who hates and opposes him and his people. And that is clear from that Romans passage, actually, isn't it? I will repay, says the Lord. And all of that means that we aren't to take Psalm 129 and see it as grounds for us to pray for people's comeuppance in the here and now. And yet there is a recognition that anyone who has opposed God and his people will not, ought not even, get away with that. And even a recognition that that is a right thing. And I'm conscious that may well cause some of us a great deal of difficulty. It's hard to get our heads and our hearts around the idea of God judging anyone, never mind to kind of long for it as the psalmist does. And yet it is worth clocking that the alternative would be even worse. As I was preparing this talk, I received an email from an organization who works particularly with the persecuted church. The email told me of 21 Christians who've been killed by Islamic extremists in violent attacks throughout October in northern Mozambique. Of four students who were injured while at Bible school in northern Myanmar after that school was shelled by the Myanmar military. And of a pastor, a man called Joel Bamaraki, a father in his 30s, and two of his church elders who were killed in a targeted attack in the Bahama Boga region of the Democratic Republic of Congo just two or three months ago. Now try contemplating a world in which that martyrdom was to no end or in which there is no ultimate vindication or no ultimate justice for those Christians who've died because of their faithfulness to Jesus. God's plan to ultimately judge that we read about as a desire or a longing of the psalmist in Psalm 129, well, it isn't petty. It's a meeting out of justice. And whilst for the psalmist, that kind of literal vindication or justice was couched as a wish or as a desire, well, for us, as we look forward to an ultimate vindication in the future, it is a certainty. How do we know it is? Well, because Jesus has died and has risen again as the guarantee of the ultimate victory which God will win over all who oppose him. Again, can you see how our future hope is grounded in historical fact? And that means that when opposition and hardship as a Christian might be wearing you down, or even the prospect that opposition and hardship to come is going to be too much for you to bear, Where will you look to for strength and for hope to keep you going? 
Well, the Bible wouldn't have you just kind of crossing your fingers, hoping that things will work out okay in the end. Well, you can be sure that Jesus will one day return. You can be certain that he will judge those who have opposed him and will rescue his people. How can you be sure? Well, look at the cross. He has won. He has conquered. And that means that your future and the future of the world in which we live is guaranteed. So keep going. Keep remaining faithful to him in all that's to come. Now, although this whole series of Psalms is particularly pertinent to to, to Christians, it does also have striking implications for those of us who don't yet know Jesus. See, what I've said so far might have implied that the dividing line between people who who are worthy of God's judgment and people who aren't is the dividing line between those of us in this room and the people who were killing Christians in the Congo or in Mozambique. But you see, that isn't the dividing line in the Bible at all. The dividing line ultimately falls between people who've rejected God, who've rebelled against him as king over their lives, and people who haven't. And you see, the problem is that there's only one who stands on the those who haven't rejected God side of the line. His name is Jesus. Everyone else is on the other side, you and me included. All of us have rejected our maker. All of us have hated Zion. And so God's perfect justice, the justice that we do actually long for when we think about it clearly, means that we should all be judged too. Which again, is why the cross is just such good news. The God of the universe loved you so very much that he would send his own son in order that the justice that ought to fall on you, on me, for our rebellion against him, against Zion, would instead fall on him. And so the question that leaves each one of us with is whether we will acknowledge that rejection of him, that by rights we should face judgment for that rejection, and yet claim the cross for ourselves. See, he has conquered. We know he has when we look at the cross and the resurrection. And he will return in judgment and in salvation. Will we bow the knee before him now? Let me pray to him as we close. Our God and Father, we thank you for the assurance that you do reign and rule over the world. And for the evidences of that in your keeping and your guarding of your people, the church. And we ask that for those of us who follow you, that knowing that would please shape how we live, would give us confidence in your purposes, would grow our desire to remain obedient to you, to identify with you publicly, even when it's costly. And we ask that even this evening, as we spent time thinking about your reign and rule, Well, you would impress upon someone who doesn't yet know the danger of rebelling against you and hating you, quite how dangerous that is. 
And yet having done so, they would find rescue, would seek your forgiveness for that rejection of you, and would bow the knee before you for the very first time, and so be welcomed into your eternal kingdom. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.